0: This is Anthony Areno and you're listening to In the Arena. This episode of In the Arena is sponsored by me, Anthony Anarino. I'm always asked about my personal productivity, and especially as it pertains to sales, so I want to take a minute and share some information about my new planner with you. You can find the planner at b2bsalestoolkit.com. This is a planner that I personally designed for salespeople and based on my own personal productivity strategies. The planner isn't like any other planner that you've seen. It's made up of three parts. The main planner is a place for your goals, your disciplines, your appointments, and your sales statistics, and a bunch of other features. We call this first book Outcomes. The second book is called Outbound, and it's a place where you design and keep your pursuit plans for your dream clients, those clients that are strategic and are custom made for your value prop. The last piece is a tablet called 90-Minute Blocks. This piece is designed for you to design three 90-minute blocks for your most important outcomes and then to plan that work. So go to b2bsalestoolkit.com to check it out and subscribe to the program. Then join us in the private Facebook group to share your success. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, then Bob Berg needs no introduction. He was episode seven on what is free enterprise. He was episode 28 on turning adversaries into allies, and he was episode 54 on the power of being a true go-giver. And The Go-Giver is a little book, it's a parable, and it has sold something close to a million copies. Bob Berg is back to talk about his new book with his writing partner, John David Mann, who is also a guest on this podcast. And the new book is called The Go-Giver Influencer. This is Bob Berg, The Go-Giver. my good friend Bob Berg how are you
1: Brother Anthony great to see you I heard your last conference just totally rocked it out as I knew it would it as was the four as the as the
0: fantastic four as I call you <laughs> do all the time does that make me the thing or does it make me captain fantastic <laughs> I, I don't know I think you're all fantastic well it was uh, it went from 400 people to 600 mm-hmm. and uh, I think we just booked the Georgia Ballroom and the World Congress Center for 1200 next year. Awesome. Way yeah. to go. Getting bigger. You yep. and I, It's been too long since you and I have talked, and I think I've been on your podcast maybe three or four times. You've been on mine as many, and uh, I don't think that people know this, but we've mentioned it once before. Sometimes just on Sunday morning, you and I just get on Skype and chat, yeah. and we haven't done that for a long time. So part of this, if it turns into just me checking on you, that's because <laughs> we just haven't had a chance to catch up that's because right. we've both been so busy. You with a new book. Everything's good?
1: Yeah. Everything's great. Yep. Thank God all is well. And you with the, uh, event and I saw how hard all, all of you worked at that and you really did a fantastic job of promoting it and putting it on. And you had so many people who'd been at your other events and all of us who watch what you do. It makes a lot of sense that you had a great crowd there.
0: Yeah. It is a lot of work though. You're a hundred percent right about that. It, it is. We just used to put
1: horror. on one every year and I'll tell you it really, yeah, every year you said, okay, that's it. Not doing it again. <laughs> then you do it the next year. Yeah. You know. But, uh,
0: I, in the interim, since the last time you and I were on the podcast, I had uh, John David Mann on the podcast, mm. and I brought him on to talk about the chef. And now I understand right. why he's your writing partner. Isn't he brilliant? Oh, is my he goodness. amazing? Not only that, but he's a genuinely good person. He is. He's a great guy, and uh, as brilliant as he is.
1: He's even more humble than he is brilliant. I mean, that's you know, and that's saying a lot because he's brilliant.
0: I just very much enjoyed talking to him, and I had never spoken to him. I, you know, I've known who he was through your work, but I had no, I've never spoken to him. So I was just delighted to uh, get a chance to do that. And and I definitely understand the relationship you guys have now. So I, I'm maybe we'll weave some of that into this conversation. But great, great guy. Okay, so I, I want to talk about. Go-Giver, Influencer, I want to take a little bit of a step back and just sort of maybe set the tone for some of this. I've spent a lot of time reading about influence, and I know that you have too. And I I don't know if people know that you wrote a book called Winning Without Intimidation as a a response, yeah, to uh, Winning Through Intimidation, which... But you know what, though? And just like the Go... And I don't mean to interrupt you, I
1: apologize. But just like the Go-Giver was sort of titled contrary to the go-getter, but we love yeah. go-getters. Right, right, right. You know, and right. and, and uh, we want people to be go-getters, people of action, as well as go-givers, people who are focused on bringing value to others, just not go-takers. Well, Robert Ringer's book, Winning Through Intimidation, yes, I titled it off of that, but his book really wasn't about winning through intimidation as it was not being intimidated by yeah. others. In fact, yeah. he later changed the title, and he always felt bad about that original title, but it was a title that sold. And I think in the 70s, when he wrote that book, I'm not judging and I'm not saying whether he should have or shouldn't. That's not my – but that was a, a very sellable
0: title. I think that, that his uh, central premise is still true. I think a lot of people are conflict-averse, and conflict comes with things. But I want to yeah. use that to sort of set this this conversation. There's a lot of people that write and speak about influence – and there are a lot of tactics that are used in in a popular sense, especially in internet marketing. And th- there are, you know, Cialdini's uh, ideas from the book Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, like reciprocity. And in the book, when you read it, you recognize that it's something that somebody is doing to someone. And uh, you're actually trying to create the obligation through reciprocity for somebody to do something back, or through social proof to make them understand that Other people are doing this. It's okay. But I don't know if you say this. Maybe it's you that says this. The coach in the book says the substance of influence is pull, not push. And I want to talk about that because I think it's a critical concept to decide what is pull and what is push. So could you share your thoughts on this? Because I I just think it, it frames up so much of your work and so much of what I think both you and I believe is the right approach for being effective with other human beings today. Well, thank you.
1: And I I think with Robert Cialdini, I think his principles are principles and like any principle or universal law, they can be used for good or bad for, you know, to manipulate or to persuade and what have you. When we talk about influence being pull first, you know, let's define influence on a very, very basic level. Really, it's simply the ability to move a person or persons to a desired action, usually within the context of a specific goal. That's its Definition. What we say is that that's not its substance or essence. That we say is pull. You, you don't hear people say, "Wow, that Joanne or that David. He he is so influential. He has a lot of push with people, right? He right. sure is pushy, man. Right? Just pushes his right. himself on everything. Just a great guy. No, uh, you know, we'll follow him anywhere. No, they'd say he has a lot of pull because that's what influence is. It's an attraction. Great influencers attract people to themselves first, and then to their idea. And then I think as you and I both agree, it's by really asking ourselves how we can benefit that other person. Because as you and I have talked about before, in in the sales vernacular, no one's gonna buy from you because you have a quota to meet. They're not gonna buy from you because you need the money. And they're not even gonna buy from you because you're a really good person who believes in what you do. They're only gonna buy from you or do business with you or follow you or be influenced by you because they believe they'll be better off by doing so than by not doing so. And that's fine, that's the way it should be. In a free market-based economy, and when I say that I simply mean no one's forced to do business with anyone else, What that does is it's beautiful because it puts we, the influencer, the salesperson, the entrepreneur in the position that we have to care about that other person's needs. We've got to put their interests first. And I think the genuine influencer does that not because they're looking to get something from that person, but because they want to build everyone in the process And that's the key. They're not doing it as a way to manipulate another person into doing their will, but as a way of building everyone, making sure everyone comes out ahead. That's really what we mean by pull.
0: And I I think to, to add to that, what pull looks like to me, I just think people that have impeccable character who are other oriented, who mm-hmm. have some sort of purpose. I mean, those are the people that actually have real influence. And I, I just wanted to divide sure. this off from the push and pull, because there's so many people who will look at Cialdini's book as a recipe book for doing something to someone and actually deciding it is a push strategy. When he wrote the book as right. sort of a warning of, right. of these are the things that, you know, someone can actually, could do to you, right? Yeah, as, as something that could be done to you. And I think it's important that all of your work leads this way. So anybody who has read Go-Giver understands this concept and what you're talking about. But I just want to make Thank it you. clear on influence that this is something that it, it's a set of character traits. It's deeper, deeper stuff than any kind of tactic you could pull. Thank you. And and this is why the core of all of your books are really character-based books. They're They're about who you are and not what you do. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Why do you believe that negotiation is or requires collaboration?
1: I think it's the difference, Anthony, between compromise and collaboration, because many people, when they hear negotiation, the first thing that comes to mind is compromise. Give up a little bit of this and that person will give up a little bit of that and everybody will be, well, they won't necessarily be happy. By the very nature of compromise, it's not two people coming away happier. George, one of the mentors, because in this story, we have two mentors and two proteges. George says to his protege, Jillian, he says, he says this jokingly, of course, but he says compromise comes from the Greek word meaning nobody gets what they want and nobody really (laughs) ends up happy, right? By it's now, by the way, there's a time and place, of course, for everything, including compromise. But generally speaking, we don't want that to be people's first option collaboration by its definition is lose-lose. Again, it means you're giving up something, and so just so you can kind of at least make something happen And it, right? No, rather than compromise, let's collaborate. Let's find a way to tap into what each person really wants, and let's make one plus one equal three. That's collaboration. Now, that other person may not be thinking that way. It's okay. It's up to you to get that ball rolling. It's not up to the other person, but through your example and through the way you're handling yourself and through the way you're approaching it, that's what's gonna happen.
0: Was the fact that you had to shave because we're going on video to do this, was that a compromise or was that a collaboration? I'm not sure. Oh, that
1: was a compromise (laughs) for me to have to shave on a Saturday when I was gonna let the, the field lie fallow. For a day, you know, a day or two, that was a compromise, but it was okay.
0: <laughs> okay, good. As long as you're still okay. I think that the point that you're making there is so critical. And I think a lot of times what people do when they say, oh, here's what salespeople's leaders say to me. They say, my people suck at negotiating. They're terrible at it. And then I say, actually, they look like they're brilliant at it to me. And they say, why would you say that? And I say, because every time they ask you if they can discount, you concede and let them do that, even though you're not happy. And uh, so they're just pointed the wrong way when they negotiate. You have to turn them around and send them back the other direction to have that conversation. And instead of it being a collaboration, we think of negotiation as it's a concession being made on one or both sides. And it doesn't have to be a concession. There's always ways to find greater value that can be created as long as you're resourceful. and. Uh, of course, in line with with the book, you have to understand that collaboration is possible and intend for that to happen and even have that conversation. Or it doesn't happen because the other person's not sure what you're doing. Unless you're out in the open and you're explaining to them, I think there's another way for us to do even more here together. Right. Oh, you're so right on the mark. Absolutely. And that's what we want people to do. And you can be open,
1: and you can be genuine, and you can, app, you can bring this person in as your partner. We cite the the great Japanese professional baseball Hall of Famer, Sadaharu O oh, in the story. He was the the all-time leading home run hitter in every country. Uh, I think it was, now I'm all of a sudden forgot, I think it was 868 home runs or something. I, I don't remember what it was, something like that. Anyway, what he used to say is that he he never saw the opposing pitcher as his adversary, but
0: rather as his partner in hitting home runs. <laughs> I'm sure the uh, pitcher didn't think so exactly, highly of that but idea. And,
1: and you know what, Anthony? And that's the key, yeah. because it doesn't take two people at first to do that. Of course, the pitcher didn't see it that way. In fact, the, he would have liked to have seen Sada Haruo as his partner in a strikeout. <laughs> right. OK, but Saida Haruo felt that way and brought that to the table. And that's what we can do. We can bring that sense of collaboration to the table and make that other person. And when I say make, I don't mean force make, but I mean, bring it about so that this person is part of a collaboration. But remember, in baseball, it really isn't a win for the pitcher when Sada Haruo hits a home run. Right. We need to make sure that in this
0: collaboration, both parties come out ahead. One of my just primary operating principles is just go first. You go first. Mm -hmm. Don't wait for somebody else to do that. Just go first and be vulnerable and be honest and be candid and and invite that person into a collaboration. I was flying first class, and the passenger that was across the aisle from me, when they came on, there was sort of a, a bag problem, as is the case on airlines where they're always trying to have people check their bags. Well, this passenger grabbed my camera bag and he moved it from first class to coach so that he could put his bag where mine already was. That and was very thoughtful. I decided to be unhappy <laughs> about it. And uh, have you ever done that where you've just decided, like, I'm going to be really unhappy about this? And it took me a, a few minutes to regain, you know, that the sort of center that I needed to realize I haven't really been harmed. There's no reason to have any kind of conflict It's one row behind me now. It's not the biggest deal on earth. So, I didn't say anything. I I stopped myself from saying anything anyway. It'd be more accurate. But after we landed, his wife gave him the look that a wife would give a husband. And he walked back to the other aisle, grabbed the camera bag and put it back. And then he turned and he just nodded to me like, uh, I put your bag back. Uh, Like like he (laughs) he knew that. And I just nodded back to him. And uh, this brings me to one of the central premises of the book that I want you to talk about. Why is it important that one master their emotions if they want influence? And uh, I did master my emotions at that moment, but Mm -hmm. with great energy devoted towards that idea.
1: Yeah. And the big question is why is it so, you know, when you think about it, so he, you know, he put the camera back there, the bag with the camera. Yeah. uh, Relatively speaking, definitely a first world problem, right? Nothing that bad. And yet, I would have felt the same way, I'm sure. Why? Because we're human beings. Right. Okay, and as human beings, we are emotionally driven people. We like to think we're logical, and to a certain extent, of course, we are, but we're pretty emotion driven. We make-
0: we're, we're capable of being logical.
1: We're mostly capable. emotional, yeah. Right. And we make major decisions based on emotion. And as you know, we back up those emotion-based decisions with logic, we, we rationalize, which, Really means nothing more than that. We tell ourselves rational lies and we <laughs> do that to justify the fact that we made a decision that we know we shouldn't have made or we we spoke to someone or handled the situation in a way that was totally counterproductive when or right when we knew we knew better. We logically knew better, but we're human beings. What we're not saying when we say master your emotions, because real, that is where it all begins. It's only when you're in control of your own emotions that you're even in a position to take a potentially negative situation or person and turn it into a win for everyone involved. When we say master your emotions, we don't mean deny your emotions. We don't mean forego your emotions. First, that wouldn't be logical, right? Because we are emotional beings. But there's also no reason to have to do that. Emotions are a wonderful part of life. They bring us joy. They make life worth living. No, you don't have to forgo them. Just be in control of them. Make sure you're the master and your emotions are the servant, rather than they being the master and you being the servant. One of our our good friends, Yours in Mind, Donji Scumaci, great leadership speaker and author and practitioner, she says, "By all means, take your emotions along for the ride, but make sure you" Are driving the car. So important. One of the characters in the story, the other mentor, Judge Celia Henshaw, she says to her mentor, Jackson, she says, you know, pretend that you're a, a company. And like any company, you have a, a CEO and a board of directors. The CEO is your logical mind, the board of directors is your emotional mind. Now, the CEO should definitely listen to the board of directors. There's great wisdom in this board of directors, just like we should listen to our emotions. There's great wisdom in our emotions. But the final decision needs to be the CEOs. And our final decision needs to be based on logic if we want to create the environment where the chances are best that we're going to get the right result.
0: I think that's right. And I, I think, you know, sometimes anger is a good thing. I mean, when, when bad things happen and somebody needs to take control of a situation, that emotional response might be the right response. Mm-hmm. But it can't be the only response. And you have to right. look at what, what your choices are. I think it's, um. I know in the book, there are five keys to mastering your emotions. Without going through each one of them here, can you just rip them off?
1: Sure. The five keys to genuine influence. One is master your emotions. Two is step into the other person's shoes. Three is set the proper frame or reset an already negatively set frame. Four is communicate with tact and empathy. And five, which is the counterintuitive one, is let go of having to be right.
0: I have a story about that. I'll have to think if I can tell that story here or not. Oh, tell it. Tell it. I'll try to see if I can work that up while we're talking. I have this idea that empathy is uh, walking a mile in another person's shoes and compassion is recognizing that their shoes are two sizes, too small, <laughs> and then actually trying to do something about it because the other individual is actually suffering. I have two questions. This is a two-parter for you. How does one step into another's shoes, uh, number one? And then what does it mean to listen with the back of your neck? <laughs> sure. Which when I read that, I thought, I would love to know how to do that well with the stepping
1: into the other person's shoes part which is a you know an old saying we've all heard it before but as you alluded to often we have different size feet so we can't really literally step into their shoes we can't know what they're thinking right so how's the best way to understand them to ask questions You're right. You talk about that all the time in your your books and to ask the right questions and listen. And as Coach George told uh, Jillian, listen, not just with your ears. That's the physical part. That's hearing. That's when we're usually we hear we're kind of listening, but it's really so we can form our answer and we get right. No. Listen with your posture. Listen, he said, with the back of your neck. And uh, John David Mann came up with that one and he introduced it to me and he explained, I had to ask him to explain it to me. And he did. And now it's become one of my favorites. It really means listen with your entire being, listen with your essence. It's remember Stephen Covey, Dr. Covey, how he said, listen first to understand, then to be understood. Exactly. This is the part where you're simply listening in order to put yourself in their shoes. You're listening to understand. Anthony, you and I have talked about this before. We all see the world differently. We come from different belief systems. You know, What is a belief? It's a subjective truth. We see the world different ways. Most conflict is simply two or more people seeing the same thing from a different vantage point or a different viewpoint. But as human beings, we think that most people see the world more or less the way we do. How could it be any different? It's all we know. So that's why stepping into their shoes by asking questions and then listening, really listening is the key to coming to an understanding, to be able to know what it is that person needs, wants, desires. What are their problems they need solved? How will collaboration work? Because it will get them what they want. And we simply can't know this by guessing.
0: Right. It's subjective. And so the only way that you can get and elicit somebody else's beliefs or their values or even their pain, you know, what's causing them to suffer? Why are they struggling with this personally, professionally, whatever it is? is to ask the questions that allow them to share that with us. That's the only way that we can get to it. But I love the concept of listening with the back of your neck. I'm going to use it widely now, specifically because it doesn't make any sense because there's no ears at the back of your neck. So what it's saying (laughs) is that if it's just your ears, you're missing a large part. And I think at at some point, the coach in that section says too, with your eyes, with your whole body – you can listen with your eyes and you can listen with your heart and you can actually try to understand what is this person really saying? What are they really going through? Because a lot of times when we're talking to people, a couple things happen. One, they don't come and directly tell us what their real challenge is. They give us the presenting problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the the things that I I learned to do um, only because I had so many people who interrupted me when I was talking was I learned to just wait for an eight count And as somebody who is a boxer, you know, an eight count's a long time. That eight count, it has never failed me that when they're done talking and you wait and you just pause, they're really not done talking. And the more you don't say anything, the more they decide that it's safe to reveal something deeper because you're actually paying attention to them. And I saw this study recently that uh, we've been taught forever to look people in the eyes when we're speaking to them, but actually uh, influence tends to be driven more by looking someone in the mouth. And and when I read that, I thought, that makes perfect sense because I can actually see you're paying attention to me and you're trying to understand what I'm saying. But we don't tend to give people our full attention when, when we're talking to them. We're not really listening. We're listening at the surface level, but we're not listening deeper than that. And I, I love the point of that learning outcome in the book. Thank it's you. really, really important. Thank you. A couple more questions for you. My wife told me of a sort of common medical condition that women often suggest they have called resting bitch face, and what that is is that they tend to look angry when they're they're just at rest. They're not angry, even though their face may give you that impression. So I have the for the record. I'm just going to say I have never noticed that. (laughs) okay, well, you're safe now. <laughs> You've just moved yourself to a safe space. I have the male version of that called resting bastard face. I have to work really hard to smile. You know, as somebody who's speaking on stage, you have to be smiling when you walk out. There's a whole bunch of situations where it pays, uh, there are great dividends for smiling. Walking into a meeting, walking into a meeting that's going to have conflict, that kind of approach can change the whole shape of the conversation. So. In the book, you actually write about smiling and and smiling with all of you. Uh, So this is back to sort of like the listening with the back of your neck. How do you smile with all of you?
1: First of all, you hit on something very important. We don't all have a natural smile. I'm sort of like that, too. And I remember speaking with John Gordon, who wrote who's written some amazing a bunch of parables. Oh, my gosh, he is just prolific and every one of them is somehow it gets better every time. But he talked about the no complaining rule. It was one of his, which I I love that book. You know, he told me by his nature, he is a complainer. (laughs) So it's something he has overcome and taken a weakness and turned it into a strength. Same with me. I am by my nature too. Always did. Gratitude was something I had to work on very, very diligently to take that from a weakness and turn it into a strength. And it's the same with smiling. So I have that same thing. My resting face isn't a smile either. So I think what we do is we have to be conscious of it. We have to be aware of it. We have to work at it in order to smile in a way that we really can do it authentically. I think we've got to think of something that we really find joy in and let that come to the surface. I think it begins on the inside and it manifests itself on the outside. And yeah, it can take work for people, so it's there's no easy way with that. But I think, in time, as you start to stay more and more conscious of it, and I'm a big believer in practice, practice it, get it to the point that it becomes authentic, make it to that point that it becomes a part of your being
0: so now, just for the listeners, you know why I talk to Bob all the time because I'm getting this kind of coaching right now as part of our podcast <laughs> interview. <laughs> I do have to That's practice. Very kind. I usually tell uh, photographers whenever I'm speaking, like, if there's ever an occasion when I'm smiling, I just need that picture, please. And, and then I had one say, hey, listen, don't wait. When you see me walk up, walk to the front of the stage and smile and I'll take the picture. That, <laughs> and I said, I'll do that. Yep. Why is it important, though, to smile?
1: You know, Dale Carnegie had a whole chapter in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People on that. Daniel Goleman, in his book, Emotional Intelligence, talked about a smile being just, what's the right word, not infective. It's catchy. When you smile, people just typically respond with a smile. It is so important. I mean, it really is a great way to to make yourself likable. I mean, I wish there was another way to say it, but there really isn't. It's just so much more pleasant to be greeted by someone who has a smile on
0: their face. And this is uh, in part about setting the frames. I want to yes. deal with that as our, our final question. And I, I wanted to bring that up because I see people walk into a meeting and it's like they're punching a clock. The energy's not there, the smile's not there. And really, you're giving someone this first impression when you walk in the room as to how things are going to go and what you're like. And I think that we devalue the thinking and the preparation to walk into a meeting with the right energy, with a smile, with a handshake, with the gratitude, and and to have the kind of energy that allows people to want to engage with you in some sort of collaborative conversation, even when there's some sort of conflict that still has to be dealt with. I think you're better off coming in and going first and having that energy and having the smile and being prepared to do these things because the outcomes are so much better when you go first. I, mm-hmm. The only way I can get Bob to change is by changing me so I change your response to me. We talk
1: about positive expectation, expect, and, and here's what I, what I say about this. Expecting someone, let's say someone who has a reputation for not being helpful right, or not being friendly, Ex- going into a conversation or a transaction, expecting someone to be helpful or expecting someone to be kind, it works. But not because by some magic you're changing them. It's that you're changing yourself. Yeah. And that's what changes them. Because when you go in there with a smile and a feeling of gratitude, right? A feeling that they're just – you go in with appreciation. And when you go in with appreciation, they pick up on that. They resonate with that. And they
0: become that. So They get to let their defenses down. Exactly. Because they don't see conflict in you.
1: Yeah. So it's not that your emotional state is changing them. It's changing you. That's what changes them. There's no magic behind it. It's actually very logical when you think about it.
0: And it's something you're capable of. Yes. I want to just take the last question I have for you, and I, I want to f- talk about framing, and I'll frame it with a, a little bit of a story. <laughs> I got an RFP once, and the RFP showed up on a Friday at four o'clock in the afternoon with a 48 hour deadline. And so it was due on Monday, and this was completely intentional by the person letting the RFP to put pressure on the respondents and to sort of set the frame and the context for what was going to happen. And what this caused people to do is every respondent just immediately went to the lowest possible price they could, knowing that there wasn't going to be anything that they could do after this. And uh, the frame was very, very powerful. They used a frame in the context that caused something. So I think not just in negotiations, but in all conversations, the frame can change the outcome of the conversation. And all of the things oh, that we've been talking to are part of the frame, but but it, it will absolutely change it. So can you talk about what frames are? I want to talk about how to use them for good and not just tactics.
1: Yeah because that was absolutely a tactic. The frame is so important, Anthony, that when you've properly set a frame, and again, it could be, say, proper, but in this case, I'm using it in the vernacular, it could have been for manipulation, as, that, as they used it, as they probably did without knowing them, but that's what it seems like they did, or it could be for persuasion, which is positive, okay? And that's how we want to use it, of course. We also wanna make sure that we don't buy into someone else's frame. When it's not set for positive reasons. So, what is a frame? Well, a frame is the foundation from which everything else takes place. Okay. Set a frame that you have 48 hours to give us the, and it's your one shot at us and it set a frame for everyone lowering their price. That was the frame. That's what they meant to do. One of the best examples of a frame I ever saw was in a Dunkin' Donuts restaurant. A little boy, probably two, two and a half years old, was running around the restaurant when his parents called him back over to the table. He starts walking over to the table, and he he slips. He falls on the floor. Now, he didn't hurt himself, you could tell, but you could also tell that he was shocked. He was surprised. He Obviously didn't expect that. And so he immediately looked at the two people who he trusts the most, his mom and dad, to get their interpretation (laughs) of the event. The event happened. He wanted to know what happens next. Now, I truly believe that had the mom and dad gotten anxious and panicky and run over and, oh, no, are you up? He'd have started to cry but what they did is they handled it perfectly. They walked over quickly, but very calmly with a real kind of nice energy about them. They had big smiles on their faces and they began to applaud and, oh, that looks like so much fun, what a good trick. And immediately (laughs) he began to laugh, right? Well, what they did is they set a positive, a productive frame from which he could operate. And we can do that same thing. Let's just take a quick example. You are in front of a prospect, and she is kind of a little bit defensive and, you know, who knows, maybe she has had a bad experience with a salesperson before she had. She was, uh, heaven forbid, pressured by them or for whatever reason, she sees this as kind of an antagonistic type of whatever. Right. Let's now reset that frame and, and set our own frame okay, a productive one. And we might say to her something like, Mary, while we've been able to help a lot of people with this product or service, whether or not it's the best solution for you, we simply can't know without exploring deeper and determining whether it meets your needs. So please know our conversation is simply for both of us to discover this. And if it does, great. If not, that's okay too. So now we've just moved this frame from one of two adversaries to one of two allies who are simply looking for the best result for her, which is what selling is all
0: about. You should write a book maybe about adversaries and allies. (laughs)
1: Have
0: you thought about that?
1: Yeah, gee, (laughs) the the, the thought has come to my mind. (laughs)
0: That's a great book. This is another great book. The whole Go-Giver, your work with John David Mann is exceptional. And what I like is this is going to take somebody two hours to read. Tops. I mean, you, you can pick this up and you can read it on an airplane. You can derive the lessons. And I would challenge you. This is my challenge. If you go pick this book up and read it, just look at each of the ideas and each of the concepts and just decide how could I be a little bit better at that? And I think the parable that you're using explains it so clearly. It's so easy to make practical and tactical that there's not, you don't have to do a lot of thinking or absorbing to know how to change your behavior to get a much better result when it comes to influence appreciate that so much. And again, I just uh, give so much credit to John for his
1: way with words and being able to just work magic with them. So I, and thank you, Anthony, as you know, you are my, I always call you my go-to sales guy. And uh, you're also a great friend and brother. And so, you know, hearing you say that means a real lot to me.
0: Uh, You just made me a little bit nervous on this call because you started to talk just about our belief systems. And I thought, oh my gosh, we're going to go into our strongly held bleeding heart libertarian belief systems and scare everybody away. (laughs) when bob and i start talking to each other we manage to avoid that libertarians what are
1: libertarians
0: (laughs) we're this uh, i don't know but whatever people think about us is probably true (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for your time we're going to send people out to uh, amazon.com and to barnes and noble to get the book any place else you want to send people I would just say if they come to the go giver without the hype and thegogiver.com dot com,
1: they can click on any of the books, but the, the new book, it's a purple cover, the go giver influencer, click on that. It will take you to the page, uh, where you can get the first two chapters, uh, read them. If you'd like, see if you like where the story is headed, then you can always click through.
0: You don't need to read the first two chapters, just buy the book. <laughs> I got it on Kindle and I got an early copy and you don't need to worry about whether or not you're going to like the book. You're going to like the book guaranteed. Thank Thanks you. so much, my friend. Ah, oh, thank you, Anthony. That was my dear friend, Bob Berg, and you can find him at bobberg.com. Do sign up for his resources, his newsletter, when you get to his website. You can find me, Anthony Anarino, at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Ann Arena. When you go out to either of those sites, you'll have an opportunity to sign up for my newsletter, which comes out on Sunday morning and reaches 80,000 people. If you like this podcast, go out to iTunes, give it a review so that we can help other people find it. And until next time, I'll see you in the arena. If you want to improve your sales results or the results of your team, I want to share a new program I've created for you. The program is called Sales Accelerator, and it's a training platform for salespeople, sales managers, and sales leaders. The training platform includes 450 individual videos now and 33 individual courses, with a new course being added literally every week. And I want to share with you one of my favorite programs. It's called Coach, and there are 104 videos in this program with more added every couple weeks. In this course, I literally give you the language for all the common prompts, objections, and concerns that your clients will throw at you as you go about selling day-to-day. If you want to know what to say and how to say it, this program will give you everything you need. So if you want B2B sales training that allows you to up your game, become a peer and a trusted advisor, and learn the -the state-of-the-art consultative selling, this is the program for you. So go visit me at b2bsalestraining.com and we'll reach out and give you a demo. If you want to make more sales faster... Let me help you accelerate your results. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.